now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Before we start, I just want to go on record and say that um, I supported John Bolton the entire time throughout all of our episodes, all of our discussions. He's got a good head on his shoulders, even keel guy, really good at foreign policy. Just putting that out there. Hell of a mustache. Hell of a mustache. You start too. with that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of those conversations has to start with he has a hell of a mustache. <laughs> oh, my God. Have to talk about that one. Um, hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. Um, before we get started, all of the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped or on, on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and the podcast itself, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. And if you were here last week or weren't here last week, either way, a uh, fun little announcement that we had. Uh, we're going to be doing a live show uh, next month. Um, uh, what are we trying to do? Uh, live show. Um, <laughs> uh, Wednesday, November, uh, November 20th uh, at 6.30 uh, p.m. Uh, at Miley Swallow Hall uh, on North Central College's campus here in Naperville. Uh, myself, Bill, uh, Phil, uh, as well as Professor uh, Tom Cavanaugh and Dr. Suzanne Chad, our, our regular super guests, will uh, be there as well. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be tons of fun. Um, like it's, we put it out there on social media uh, a few days ago. Um, just so you guys know, there's uh, an event page on Eventbrite if you want to check that out. Um, tickets are free. We just kind of want to get uh, an understanding of how many people are, are coming. Um yeah, just go there, uh, Eventbrite, search for Barstool Politics. It should be the first thing that pops up um, and grab a free ticket. As many as you want. Get all of them if you want. I don't care. But get a ticket. It yeah. would be so nice of you to do that. Thanks, guys. Give us some good data. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, finally, we get to talk about something other than uh, impeachment. And it's, you know, just hundreds of thousands of people getting displaced and murdered and whatnot. But, that, you know, it's 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 a balance. That being serious. <laughs> All right, let's dive in. So last week, the White House announced that the U.S. would withdraw troops from a region of northern Syria that borders Turkey. Trump argued that the action fulfilled a campaign promise to end U.S. involvement in wars such as Syria and bring our troops home. Apparently, Trump made the announcement after talking with Turkish uh, President Erdogan, who believes that the Kurdish forces are terrorists and a threat to Turkey. The decision has received widespread bi and bipartisan criticism. 
Many have suggested that the U.S. is abandoning a longstanding ally and warned that this withdrawal would lead to a dangerous resurgence of the Islamic State. In an impromptu news conference, Trump said he expected Erdogan to conduct the offensive in, quote, as humane a way as possible, noting he can do it in a soft manner and that if he doesn't, he's going to be a very big economic price. He should do it it softly, softly. (laughs) Trump also noted that the Kurds didn't help us in the second war and they didn't help us in Normandy. And the days since the announcement, Trump has in fact, or Turkey has in fact invaded Syria. I don't know. And targeted Kurdish populations and forces in the area. Feeling abandoned by the U.S., uh, the Kurds in Syria announced on Sunday that they had a new deal with the government in Syria, a sworn enemy of Washington that is backed by Russia and Iran. Phil, there is so much to break down here. Where do you want to start? Uh, I, it's a good question. <laughs> it's hard to pick a starting place. Um, I mean, so I feel like we should talk some about uh, how this decision got made um, because there's questions about that. I think we can talk about the the Republican response to it and, and you know, how uh, the, the Trump administration today uh, or I guess yesterday maybe announced that they're going to impose sanctions on, on Turkey in response to this. Um, that's, a, well, we can talk about, it. we can talk about that aspect <laughs> yeah. of it. Uh, but also I think just in, in general, I mean, I, I guess we should start by talking about the significance of what's happening, um, and how, uh, well, I, I'm going to basically argue that it, 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 everything that's happening as a result of this, not everything, I was gonna say that everything that's happening as a result of this decision on the U S seems bad. Um, the, the the maybe we begin with the go, the good right the the good is that or, or the argument of the good of this is is what Trump is arguing that essentially you know he's he's aiming to get us out of forever wars there is an argument to be made for getting the United States out of Syria uh, uh, we we talked I feel like you know in the past about how a commitment to uh, stabilizing or, or doing something in Syria. Um, there's lots of arguments for doing that, but it feels like we've taken this kind of halfway approach. We're not committed to bringing about regime change or to pushing through democracy, or we're not even committed to a Kurdish state. We're not committed to any of that. It feels like we're committed to the status quo, which is like where things are. We don't want it to get worse. Um, and so there are arguments for saying we, you know, we should, we should get out. Having said all of that, this seems like a, a huge disaster for U.S. foreign policy uh, in, in that this is a win for Assad, right? This is a win for uh, the Syrian regime because the Kurds had been our most effective partner in, in well, in, in fighting against ISIS, uh, but also to some extent in, in trying to bring some level of stability to, to uh, Syria. It's a win for Erdogan and Turkey. It's a win for Russia. All of this seems like a plus. It's a win for ISIS. It's a win for Iran. It just seems like this is just a bad list of winners. It is. It is. When when that's the list of people happy with the decision, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't make that decision, right? We shouldn't do it just to spite other countries, but it should lead us to have some real pause about why are we doing this and and is it worth, worth doing it? Um, I, I mean, are there good are there good aspects of this that I'm missing? Am I being overly pessimistic about uh, the implications of this? 
No, I think there, you're, you're right that there's an argument to be had about getting the United States out of these never-ending conflicts, and Syria is one of them. What's unique about Syria, though, is that it was a relatively small amount of troops the U.S. had there. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it, 50 in, in the immediate area and, what, maybe 1,000 total? They're talking about, yeah, removing roughly around 1,000 troops. But, the, yeah, so, so that's a, a relatively small commitment compared to thinking about, you know, what we had in Afghanistan and Iraq. Those are, those are bigger forever commitments. Mm-hmm. So that's something, but how you do it matters. And it feels like this was done so haphazardly. Everyone was caught off guard. When, when, when you managed to piss everybody off, including your own party, the Democrats, uh, the military, you know, usually the Britain armed forces and France are, are, are allies. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Usually the military or, or former or current military leaders are pretty taciturn about criticizing the president. This was everybody said this was a bad idea. It's it's hard to do that. It's hard to make that bad of a decision um, and, and surprise everybody. Yeah, it's um, I, I, I was thinking about it today. I feel like you would have gotten at this point less pushback if you had done a, a massive troop withdrawal from Afghanistan compared to what this is. This was there's such a a a low um uh US involvement in terms of logistics and personnel in this particular theater but at the same time in less than a week you have somewhere between 100,000 and 250,000 people displaced um like 70 civilian kills or 70 civilians killed thus far nobody has any idea how many Kurds have been killed uh, that are part of the uh, Syrian defense force um it, it's just it makes no sense. Like Syria is is or the the Syrian Defense Force, which is uh, mainly organized and and run by by the Kurds. Kurds yeah, um, maintain prisons and 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 jails for ISIS fighters. Yeah, which as this is going on, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It was just I was just going to throw. It's like something like twelve thousand ISIS fighters that are right. that are in Kurdish prisons. Yeah, right. So they're already the uh, the the Kurds are already putting out tweets and, and messages saying that there are riots at the prisons and and you know prisoners are are escaping and you know ISIS fighters are are going back into the mix. Which I put just, that in the bad list. That right? Phil talked about some good list. things. <laughs> that I, ISIS running rampant <laughs> is a bad thing. <laughs> um, but then there's also this kind of not kind of this, this very obvious ethnic cleansing component to it as well. We already have Turkish forces going in and doing summary executions of Kurds to the point where they're, they executed a a Kurdish, a a very prominent Kurdish politician. And this was, this has been what less than a week at this point. It's, it's just, it's, I, I, I cannot fathom the reasoning behind this. There are plenty of, like you said, there is reasoning in the sense of, we absolutely shouldn't be involved in every single Middle East conflict um, that's around. But this one didn't wasn't really costing us anything and was and keeping Russia and Iran and Turkey at bay. I, I, it just makes no sense. And, and the argument to get out of, you know, the argument that we're getting out of forever wars in the Middle East is also undermined by the fact that like two days later, Trump announced that we're deploying something like 2000 more troops to Saudi Arabia. Um, mm. but, but Saudi Arabia is paying us for those troops. That's, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's a whole so, other thing we could talk a about. Mercenaries are different. <laughs> right. Right. U.S. foreign policy is for sale. Um, I mean, there's another, the, the other thing to add to the list of why this is bad um, is the more abstract aspect, which is the, 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 I think, you know, we've talked about how Trump's foreign policy 
policy, his approach to NATO, some of these, uh, you know, his unwillingness to reaffirm our commitment to NATO, some of the other things he's done have a lingering effect, right? Because even when Trump's gone, the the trust in American foreign policy or the trust that sort of the next American president isn't going to, you know, that, that they might not be committed to the ideals that the U.S. has put forth in the past, that's going to linger with us. And this feels like another example of which we, we didn't just... Uh, I, we didn't just abandon the Kurds. We abandoned the Kurds in kind of the worst way possible, right? We convinced them to sort of lower their defenses. We had made all sorts of promises to them. Uh, it was a little bit controversial when Trump first kind of really engaged with the Kurds because Kurd, the Kurds are, you know, on Turkey's shit list and Turkey is a NATO ally. And so we were sort of reluctant to engage with the Kurds anyway in a formal way. Uh, and then we did it. And just to feel like, I mean, it feels like, Maybe we can talk about this. What, because this is so bad, how did this decision get made? I mean, this feels like the, there's part of me that thinks this is the impulse machine that we've talked about, mm -hmm. right? Trump just on a whim decided he's going to do that. Uh, on, on another sense, you know, the other element of it is he, he talked to Erdogan the, the day of or the night before. Um, and this is, in the, of course, in the midst of all sorts of stories about the U, you know, U.S. changing foreign policy or pressuring leaders for for different things. Um, he, he's amenable to uh, dictator-like uh, leaders around the world, and Erdogan falls into that category. I, I don't I don't really – it's hard for me to wrap my head around why this would happen other than he just – not unthinking, he just made the announcement, didn't doesn't think it through, and now he's – I don't know. There's no way – so normally a foreign policy decision works its way up, right? I mean it gets – it gets go through all the – you know, the Defense Department, State Department, everybody kicks it around and then it finally makes its way to the, the president's office who ultimately weighs in on it. There's no way this made its way through the military, mm -hmm. through the state, through defense, all the way up. This was – I think you're right, Phil. This was a an impulse. He, he doesn't like that we're in Syria. Uh, Erdogan probably played him. I think if we're going to be honest about this, they had a conversation. Erdogan probably convinced him. He's easily convinced by these, you know, quasi dictators and said, we're just going to do this. And they announced it what Sunday evening. They just released a press statement saying, basically, we're getting out. Um, it's an awful way to make a decision, mm -hmm. especially given the consequences that you talked about, Nick. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like based off of what we've seen over the past day or so, the administration or what's left of the administration is trying to to backpedal to some extent or yeah. at least make up for this massive fuck up. Um, to my, say that they didn't intend Turkey to invade. Well, yeah. Which yeah. is a bunch of garbage. Well, yeah. yeah. So Pence is supposed to go out there as soon as it's humanly possible. You have these half-assed tariffs, which I think equated to it was raising the tariffs on Turkey steel manufacturing, which uh, equals like one tenth or one quarter yeah. of one percent of their total economic output. So it's, no impact. It's insignificant. Yeah. Um, it, it just I, I'm I, I'm with you guys on this one. I'm not going to say that very often. So but this is a, no. hey, bipartisan <laughs> <laughs> because it, I mean, you, you Phil, you laid out the maybe only good reason to get U.S. troops home. But there's a lot of really, really bad reasons. One, the potential release of a lot of ISIS fighters who you know, Trump says, well, they'll just go into Europe, right? <laughs> That's not true. They'll go into Europe and then eventually they cause chaos well, there, cause chaos elsewhere. That's a really bad development. 
It's a it's a bad it's a bad it's a bad thing for it to happen, and that's a terrible thing for an Ameri- for a, us to say about our NATO and our European allies, right? And, but it, it sort of encapsulates the the Trump mentality in a lot of ways. I mean, even in his press release when he basically said Turkey's going to invade, he he went on to a second paragraph in which he basically talked about how you know the European countries should be doing this, and we're done doing it. Yeah, and that's the thing that that the press release. You're right, Nick. That he's been they've been the administration has been walking this back, saying, "Well, you know, we we were withdrawing, but we had no idea that Turkey was going to invade." The statement that they released right. says, "I just talked to Erdogan. They're going to fill the gap. They're going to take control of all of this." Like they, it's it's like reality doesn't exist for them. I mean, <laughs> they they knew this was going to happen. They didn't anticipate all the consequences, and now. It's bad ISIS ways. The other thing that we haven't even talked about is that uh, Russia is is apparently moving in. Mm-hmm. Syria is now aligned with the Kurds. It is entirely possible that there could be conflict between Turkey and Syria. Now, Turkey is a NATO member. So there is, there is an alliance structure there where if Turkey goes to war with Syria, the United States is once again brought back into this. Can we talk about that for, an, mm-hmm. for a minute? Because sure. I, I, like, as all of this is going on I, and the individual components kind of are, are coming together, Turkey is a NATO ally. Mm-hmm. They've been pretty complicit in funning or fun, funning. Funning sounds <laughs> funning. fun. Yeah, they've been funning <laughs> a lot. Um, funneling ISIS members through their territory. Um, they, as the economic sanctions, sanctions were getting put in place, they threatened to release migrants and refugees into Europe. Um, it's a nice thing to do They're Like it's their, they may have been a, a potential really good democratic ally in the middle East. And they are just not that anymore. What they, are, I, in my, I, I don't think they should be a NATO ally at this point. Well, they have no chance. I mean, Phil, you could speak to this. I mean, Turkey has no chance of getting in the EU anymore, right? I mean, the the illiberal direction that that Erdogan has taken the country, that's not even on the table. No, I mean, there's been opposition within the EU to Turkish membership for a long time. I think there's some people who would argue even that the shift towards authoritarianism and back towards the sort of conservative religious Islamic groups in Turkey is a response to the fact that Europe has kind of shunned Turkey because, uh, I mean, some Europeans shun Turkey explicitly because they are Muslim and and that, you know, culturally is in their mind. I mean, that's, you know, uh, Austria, you know, Jörg Haider and people like that. But yeah, I mean, I, especially with the shift, with the, with the path that Erdogan has taken over the past five to 10 years, yeah, there's no chance of it. But I, so to, I look to, at, you know, well, I, 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 the the aspect of Turkey as a NATO ally is, I mean, it, it's part of what makes this whole thing really complicated and really interesting, right? We are sanctioning, if we go through with what Trump and the Republicans are talking about, we're sanctioning a treaty ally, right? A NATO ally is different from, you know, a, a partnership that we have with Saudi Arabia or this sort of implied, you know, protection that we have with Saudi Arabia. So if we're sanctioning a, 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 a NATO ally, this is this is another way that Putin is like triple winning, right? This is his dream that there are rifts within NATO. But so I my we were talking about this in my international law class this week, and I, I looked it up because I didn't know there's no way, no explicit way in the NATO treaty to remove a member. And so 
Turkey can leave NATO, but there's nothing laid out for how you can expel Turkey from NATO unless you were to basically redraft the the treaty that that but that would require unanimous approval, including Turkey on board. So we have, you know, our hands are sort of tied in these strange ways, but it seems like a problem that NATO should have dealt with. Uh, I mean, this is this is not a surprise, right? This is a this is a, a path we've been on for a while, and and you know you see this popping up with how we deal with this situation. It's the fact that we still have nuclear uh, weapons in Turkey that shouldn't be the case with the path that Turkey has been on. A lot of this, we should have had contingencies in place to deal with this, you know, leading up to this, and it feels like we're just kind of figuring it out as we go, as Turkey shells around American troops in Syria to intimidate them. I mean, this is foreign policy is hard, right? It's complicated. It's messy. And this is an example of this where we see just I mean, you think back to the beginning of the Trump administration when they had some of those individuals, the adults in the room. If Mattis is there, this probably doesn't happen. If Till- Sleepy Tillerson's there, this probably doesn't happen uh, because they would. But nobody else is around. And he's enabled. Trump is enabled to make these decisions. And it's it's really, really detrimental. This is. It's hard to exaggerate how big of a screw up this is. If, if this ends up being a moderate crisis, that's a win at this point. Uh, it could spiral in a whole number of really bad ways. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I no, keep no. thinking about um, the the. Uh, the role of sort of miscommunication and how how wars kind of spiral out of control. And this just feels prime for it, right? So, I mean, we have a situation in which there have been reports, you know, we have provided Turkey with the location of American troops so they don't kill us um, accidentally. Uh, but it seems like Turkey's using that in <laughs> to our disadvantage, right? They're, they're shelling all around us to intimidate us. But, you know, we now have a, a NATO ally basically advancing on our own troops and, and that there's the, uh, the chance of something happening, especially if you have Russian and Syrian troops moving in, like the, the, the chance for this, some stupid error to happen that in fact explodes this into a much bigger thing is, is kind of terrifying to me. A hundred percent. Right. I mean, I, I think, and there's both the interstate dynamic, but there's also the ISIS element to all of this. No, this is, it's just, it's really, really. It's not how you run a national security process, and it's uh, it, it's it should be embarrassing for the Trump administration and, and the Secretary of Defense, who obviously wasn't big enough to stand up to Trump on this, or the or, or Pompeo. I mean, they are the one who need to rein in this impulse of Trump to say, "I just want to get out. I just want to get out." That's a fine impulse, but it's got to be managed and, and moderated in a way that's in the long term interest of the country. What could that have? Con- what could that conversation have looked like? Or was there even a conversation at that point? Because it seems like it's so out of left field and we, a lot of his shit is out of left field. This seems like there was absolutely not one iota of thought put behind, put behind this in terms of foreign policy, uh, military logistics and strategy. This, there's nothing to it. No reason to do it whatsoever. Besides a conversation that he had with another world leader who, uh, again, kind of sounds like he took another cleaner. The statement reads like Trump wrote it or dictated the statement. I mean, it feels like it came from the president and nobody else other than maybe a handful of individuals around the president helped. And that's that's not how you conduct foreign policy. And, and to circle back to a point that you made earlier, Phil, you know, you can talk about the Kurds as an ally that has now been cut loose. There are a lot of groups like that around the world that the United States engages with for short term interest, right? And they have to trust that the United States is going to support them and that our word is good. And so when you do this to the Kurds, it, it, it doesn't just affect Syria, it affects 
faith in the United States around the world. I mean, the United States is still the most powerful country in the world, and we look tremendously weak here. I mean, we're running away from Turkey because we're afraid we got to get out early. I mean, we are the actor that should be setting the agenda in the Middle East, and we are now an afterthought to Iran and and Russia and Turkey. It's it's it, again, I just it's embarrassing. So there's an interesting contrast that you bring up or that that pops up in my head as you talk about this, in which I think your your argument is right in that Trump is perceived as weak internationally, right? I think that that other leaders feel like they can sort of push him around, they can get their way, they can convince him. That's interesting when you con- contrast it to his perception at home, right? And part of this, I think, plays out with the Republican Party's response. So the Republican Party, um, Democrats too, but a lot of Republicans were out, you know, very outspoken in their criticism of this decision. Almost none of them have been critical of Trump specifically. They've been critical of Turkey. They've been critical of the decision that was made. Um, very few are actually calling out Trump. And, and I think that brings up uh, a couple of things. One, the contrast between the, the extent to which People here, people within his own party seem terrified of what he can unleash on them versus internationally where people don't seem to care that much at all. But it also is it brings up the issue of, of why the Republican Party, why Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and all these other people who have been so hesitant to ever critique Trump were so willing to do it in this case. And, and I think there's a number of things that go into that, one of which is that the American public doesn't care about foreign policy. And so Marco Rubio can can critique this decision and not really pay a price for it. That's different from critiquing Trump. But I mean, it also gets around to the fact that if you want to change this policy, sanctioning Turkey is the most roundabout way to do it, right? You, Trump can change the policy. Trump can turn around. He could call Erdogan and say, stop, we're not removing our troops and we, you know, we will do what it takes to defend them. Um, it's a strange, again, it feels like, you know, internationally, people aren't afraid to take him on at all, but people at home are terrified. Republican Party are terrified of taking him on. Which is, to me, this struck me this week because the Ukraine stuff is still playing out. The impeachment inquiry is playing out and Republicans are are running from criticizing Trump there. It's also a foreign policy issue. I, I have to admit, I was surprised a little bit by the pushback, the very quick pushback that came back from Repu- came from Republicans. It, it surprised me. How can you lay down when it comes to Ukraine and the impeachment inquiry, but be so forceful in the other way? Do you think it's just because they feel... Trump's not going to go after them if he if he's criticized on foreign policy. I mean, I, I don't I don't get it because it feels like he doesn't like being pushed any way, shape, or form. But Lindsey Graham was out there. I mean, all of the Republicans, Rubio, the usual group that that doesn't say a thing, suddenly was saying things, and they weren't testing the political waters before they were were saying them. Yeah, it's I. Um... It's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know how much of it is that Republicans view sort of the Middle East and the war on terror differently, you know, Ukrainian politics or who cares, whereas this is, you know, something that that uh, Republicans are, are familiar with. Um, I don't know how much of it is that they're able to make a critique of this policy change without like while still not directly critiquing Trump, like the extent when you look at the tweets, the extent to which Republican leaders could like just go into detail about how this is devastating 
but never they just talk about this policy change. They don't ever. No one was ever saying, you know, Mr. President Trump should change. Right, that this is a problem. Never was it a critique of him. Somehow they were able to sort of work around it. That's harder to do with Ukraine, right? To to critique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but but I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think to some extent it's it's that Ukraine is in the news and it's become this test of Trump and Trump loyalty and. I, maybe because this came so out of left field. And I, again, I, Americans don't know who Kurd, who the Kurds are or what's yeah. going on in Syria or, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it is a little strange to see it. The other part is how much of this is, is evidence of the erosion of support for Trump mm-hmm. in that Republicans yeah. feel mm-hmm. safe se- stepping out and saying things and how much of it is contributing, right? If, if Trump has done something that has upset a lot of Republicans that also erodes at his support in, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's, it's it's entirely possible because the impeachment stuff is playing out. Republicans feel better about criticizing him on this issue. And maybe there is a bit of, of gang up on him on this because, you know, part the impeachment is partisan. But this one is a clear way where we can hammer you and show exactly. you we're not pleased. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know that there there's not a tremendous amount of specific animosity towards Trump. But I was surprised there was as much as there was, to be perfectly honest, yeah. compared to what we've seen over the past several months. Um I think this is an easy one. We went through the pros and cons, and that cons list is pretty glaring. Yeah, I think this is this is an easy win for them. That's very definitive and succinct that people can wrap their heads around. And again, doesn't kind of get into the the mire that is the Ukraine scandal and all of the mess that we have to deal with here, and doesn't really cost them any political capital. There's yeah. no reason for them not to do it. Sure. So this is not going to get any better anytime <laughs> no, soon. It's not. Oh, should we anything else here? Or do we want to start talking beers? Mm, no, it's bad. All right. <laughs> Phil, what, what are you enjoying? <laughs> so I'm drinking a uh, this is from Schilling Beer Company, which is out of Littleton, New Hampshire. I, I've had a lot of their beers. I really like their beers. Um, and this is different uh, in that it is it's called Tenno Dry uh, and it's their rice lager. And and I've talked before on here about how much I so rice lager would be like, a, you know, like a Japanese style lager or whatever. So um, I have talked about how I like a good lager. I like a good, you know, after the after you've mowed yeah. the lawn type beer. I, <laughs> yes. I really like this. Like the 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 reviews, you know, when you look at the reviews online, they're good, but not necessarily great. I think that's, again, because it's a lager. So it's not it doesn't have those really strong strong kind of, you know, hoppy or, you know, citrusy flavors. It's, this is real dry. It's real crisp. Um, but it's not like flavorless. It's, it's really, it's, this is really good. Um, I, I, not only would I go back and have more of these, I have gone back and bought more of these because I like (laughs) it so much. That's good. Uh, you don't see a ton of rice lagers in in Chicago. No, you really don't. Yeah. No. All right. Speaking of Chicago beer, what are, what are we enjoying, Nick? We are having a uh, a Commonwealth from uh, One Lake Brewing, which is uh, in Chicago. Great guys. Um, they just opened their their place down on uh, on Austin. Yeah, correct. Just right in Oak Park. Yeah. yeah, or right on the edge of Oak Park. I don't know where that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a Commonwealth. It's a it's Kentucky Kentucky Common, Common yeah. I believe. Um, I like this it's a one great a beer. Oh. Um, it's it looks. Um, it's kind of very, it's very dark, um, but it doesn't look heavy. Uh, there's not really any head to it either, but it's really smooth. Almost, you almost get like a, a caramely mm-hmm. or, or malty kind of sweetness to it. Yeah. Um, 
It's really, really good. It's very drinkable. All of their beers. What I liked about that. So we were down there the other day. Uh, Tom Cavanaugh, our senior, senior legal analyst, is a big fan of them. Uh, he took us down there. And all of their beers are really a low alcohol level, right? Mm-hmm. Everything was, was it under five, everything? Pretty close. Yeah. yeah. So so these are really hefty beers <laughs> that don't have a high alcohol content. So they're very drinkable, mm-hmm. but also good flavor. You're right. The maltiness in this is fantastic. This mm-hmm. is a, a special beer. Yeah. It's yeah. It's very. It good. would be hard to find somebody who wouldn't like this kind of beer. No, they whatever your tastes are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, um, like I said at the beginning, follow us on um, uh, Untapped on Ooh. iOS or Android. You can download it through there. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics, uh, and you will find our reviews. For yeah, so yeah, just for people who haven't been here. Uh, since we started doing the impeachment thing, we're going to go into speed rounds. Yeah, now. we haven't done it in a couple of weeks. No, so yeah. we figured, you know, just a little, sure. little introduction. So we normally do a bigger topic at the beginning of the show, take a break to talk about beers, uh, and then we do shorter, you know, somewhere between three and five different topics about other things going on, uh, roughly around five minutes each. We never really pay attention to the bell, but we <laughs> like to say that we do, um, just so we can cover all of the yeah. the, the stuff that's going on. So, so let's let's start. Yeah, so, let's do that. We're going to start in China. We wanted to talk about China last week, but there was just so much going on. So, so so in China, the last two weeks have made evident that China is not afraid to play hardball. You get that, Nick, the basketball. It's good with foreign <laughs> companies when it comes to free speech. Wait, 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 yeah, wait, wait, there we go. Fantastic. It all started with a tweet by Houston Rockets general manager who tweeted something in support of the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. The tweet unleashed massive retaliation from China that put the team and the entire NBA on notice. China State TV cut off preseason games and announced that it would immediately investigate uh, all cooperation and exchanges involving the NBA. That's a big deal. It involves a lot of money. The message was clear. If you want to do business here, there will be no criticism of the Chinese government. This fits a broader pattern of threats and reprisals against foreign organizations who say anything critical of the country's internal politics. The NBA released a middle-of-the-road statement trying to wiggle its way out of this, which which many, including Senator Ted Cruz, criticized. Phil, the NBA is a major global corporation worth billions, and China made made them and the idea of free speech look like weak, insignificant global actors. What was your reaction to all of this? Uh, I think the NBA should be ashamed <laughs> if I'm just honest about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. so I, th- it's really fascinating, right? I mean, there have been other instances of of uh, countries with a lot of economic power, um, you know, throwing that around to influence outside of their borders, right? The European Union has done this with their anti-monopoly type laws that that if American companies want access to European markets, and it's a big market, then they have to abide by certain, you know, European laws. In the past, you know, your EU laws largely line up with ours. And so it hasn't, you know, it's it's not been that big of a deal. Um, we've complained about they, they're more strictly regulated or whatever, but this is a different type of thing, right? And this is, I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is the NBA has to decide, do they want Chinese money or do they value Chinese money or do they value free speech, right? You can't have both. Um, and what they have said this week, it, it seems pretty obvious, is that they want Chinese money. Um, the money. And, and yeah. the part that's been amazing is that it's carried over into the US. Like the, the idea of, 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 uh, Basically, sanctioning or critiquing uh, an you know an employee for saying something is problematic in and of itself. But they've been escorting people out of of 
arenas in the United States for having pro Hong Kong, you know, material. That's, that's insane. That yeah. LeBron James, who has like made this career oh. out of like social justice stuff and tweeting Martin Luther King comes around to say that, you know, he should have thought more about the implications and Steve Kerr. He doesn't I mean, fully understand it. Uh, that's terrible. That's Steve terrible. Kerr. The, yeah. yeah. No, we're right. in Chicago. Who's Fuck Steve? you, Steve Kerr. Right. And Steve yeah. Kerr usually doesn't hold his tongue, right? right. I, I would love to see the behind the scenes, what was said, right? Oh yeah. It's, it's, terrible yeah the extent to which it's not not just the organization but the the extent to which everyone in the organization down the line has seemed to fall in line has been so it's been surprising to me it's been really disheartening to me right like i I, the, the idea that people again because they have some economic thing to gain will just be okay with this um has been i guess i shouldn't be surprised but uh it's it's been really disappointing Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Nick. You've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. Yeah, just because the the NBA thing kind of put it in in very stark contrast, but there's a bunch of different things. And keeping on the NBA for a second. So in uh the NBA released a a statement on I think it was last Monday on is it Weibo? Weibo? Yeah. Um, in China. Yeah. So microblogging site used in in China saying that the league was extremely disappointed by what it called an inappropriate comment. The same post said that the NBA stance was that Maury's view severely hurt the feelings of Chinese fans, which did not appear at all in the domestic statement that they put out. The translation was a little different. Yeah. Right. Just a little (laughs) off. Yeah. We recognize that the views expressed by Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Maury, have deeply offended many of our friends and fans in China, which is regrettable. Uh, It continued, but never said extremely disappointed, inappropriate, or severely hurt feelings. Hurt feelings is a phrase that's commonly used by Chinese authorities to describe uh, perceived gaffes and and slights against the central government. It's just this this weird double speak that they do, and it's it's happening everywhere. There was a kid who uh, won a an esports championship uh, through uh, Blizzard Entertainment, um, World of Warcraft, Overwatch, all that stuff that nerdy people will know about. I would be one of those people. Um, who made a statement right after he won uh, in support of the protests in Hong Kong? Had his title stripped away, had his winning stripped away. Um, which caused a massive backlash. They eventually gave him his money back, but still didn't give him the title, I believe, uh, and reprimanded him and wouldn't, I don't think they stopped him from competing for uh, at least another year. Um, they banned South Park yeah. because they had an episode criticizing this because of censorship in in China. So that's completely gone. It's just, it's bizarre how how just their their tentacles are in everything and nobody seems to want to push back against well it. it's it's global power right i mean china is not a little rinky dink country they they have humongous influence economic markets and if you want access to those markets you play ball the way they want you to <laughs> so i'm not surprised i'm disappointed by that what's most upsetting to me is, is something you highlighted phil is that i get that the nba needs to to play nice internationally, but don't do it within the U.S. markets. Don't pull microphones away from reporters who are asking hard questions. Don't tell your players, you know, to, to, to not answer questions. And LeBron James is, you know, again, Phil, to your point, who normally is pushing social justice and talking about this. I'm not saying he's got to be an expert in Hong Kong. He could say, I just don't follow this very closely. But to, you know, do the party line, the NBA line to say that, no, 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 he doesn't understand this. That's terrible. Bad on LeBron James for that. Who, I, I, but ugh. here's the thing: like we can talk about the social justice angle of this all we want. 
personally, I think that they do that because they know there's no political consequences to it, especially from a domestic audience standpoint. Nobody's going to come back against them <clears throat> to the extent that, you know, the, the central uh, communist party in China will. I, I think that the only reason that there is any sort of, um, wavering at this point is just money. If, if, if we're talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and all that, all the other causes that players and, and owners and managers have, have taken up over the past few years, they do it because it's easy. And that should say something to you guys. This is a severe, severe problem. I, I just, I, this is something that needs to be dealt with. It should be given just as much importance and authority as those issues that you're talking about. And you just look like hypocrites right now. The the part that I think is interesting, and I, I haven't thought all that much through this, so maybe I, I realize the bell has rung, but we're going long on this because this is a good topic. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I, the, the part that's, in, I mean, th this fits into a, a couple of ideas to kind of tie this into some international relations stuff, and then I'll, I want to hear what you two think of it. You talked about power transition theory a, a couple of weeks ago, right? But the idea that China is increasing in power and is dissatisfied. So power transition talks about how wars occur when you have this rising power who's unhappy, who's dissatisfied with like the international status quo. That fits China to a T, right? They're increasing their in economic power, military power, and they don't love the way the you know Western liberalism has structured things. So they're unhappy about it. This seems to me like a, a, a kind of a classic example of that and, and further exacerbated it by the Hong Kong protest, right? So they're already, you know, international eyes are on them. They're, they're, they don't like what's going on in Hong Kong um, at the same time that their, you know, economic power and all this other stuff is rising. So it kind of makes this perfect uh, storm in some ways for this to happen. The other part of it that I think is, is interesting is that China, I mean, this story has been talked about as if China has all of the power. And that seems to leave out an, a full understanding of American soft power, right? What, what you are admitting to is that, um, you know, why China would even care what the NBA says is because the NBA is really popular in China. So the idea, I mean, that means that the NBA and, you know, U.S. economic, you know, U.S., uh, um, products are in demand in China, which gives the U.S. power in this situation, right? If you don't like our views on democracy, then you can live without the NBA, right? And if it's a widely popular mm -hmm. thing, that actually has an impact in China. I think about like the other way this has come up is that movies, movies who alter, you know, images or storylines so that they can sell in China. And that's an example, again, of American soft power. We they, we are the, the sort of, you know, Hollywood is the center of the cinematic world. The U.S. is the center of you know, the, the non soccer sports world. Right. And so, um, it's, it, that's, I mean, that is power that the U S should be using. And I know that this is not the United States government doing this, but the, the fact that the NBA would just collapse so quickly, as opposed to recognizing that they are actually in a position of power, you don't like it tough. Yeah. You want to, you want to not show our preseason games. Great. Um, and if you have a problem with what our employees say from this point on, you can live without the NBA, this widely popular, massively popular thing in your country. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. And it, it speaks to the degree to which not only 
the NBA is weak here, but the United States isn't. When the United States pulls away from the world, it allows countries like China to reemerge and set the dialogue. Trump didn't say a thing about this, right? I mean, at least I don't remember. I mean, Ted Cruz said something, but you didn't hear anything from the office of the presidency. Trump could have come out and condemned what China was doing here, could have taken the lead, could have helped the NBA and given them some protection to say, you know what, this is what we stand for. We stand for human rights. We stand for Hong Kong. And, you know, we, we love basketball to be a global. But if China doesn't want to play this way, then I mean, they, they, they could have put a lot of pressure on China. Instead, the NBA looks weak. The, the U.S. government looks absent from this conversation. You know, the country that prides itself on free speech, all of it is it's really, really depressing. I mean, these are these are still corporations, though. Yes. And this, this they, they are doing exactly what they should be doing in the sense of we're talking about American capitalism. Um, <clears throat> I, I agree that soft power should be an important factor that plays into this, but it's a shitload of money, man, oh, especially yeah. in terms of entertainment. I think it was. The last Avengers movie made something like 860 million or something domestically and made another 640 million in China alone. That's correct. So that's and that's the, the theory is that we see a lot of these movies, you know, that are kind of very middle of the road, kiddish superhero bullshit because they don't offend people in China. Um, and there's there's the software companies, Blizzard, Epic. All of those have to operate in China only if Tencent or another major Chinese corporation has a major stake in them. So we can talk about soft power all we want, but they are so integral, especially in terms of uh, American entertainment, that we don't know how much is just owned by the Chinese at this point. And that, you know, expands to Silicon Valley and intellectual property rights and everything else that as much as that soft power is a, a strength that we need to utilize that continues to wane uh, just out of greed at this point. And there's, you know, it's it's yeah. a tremendous amount of money to lose. And the U.S. government is not going to make up that difference. No. And as much as I disagree with their vision, China has a long-term strategic vision. Our opening topic was about an absence of vision on the United States, but China has that. And it's not mm -hmm. just immediate. They're thinking long-term about how they're going to restructure the system. Power transition theory is fantastic, Phil. It's so it's perfectly captures what's going on here. Mm -hmm. oh, stupid. Child. Yeah. All right. Should we talk about Rudy? <laughs> yes. All right. So last week we learned that two associates of President Trump, President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, had lunch uh, with Giuliani at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., hours before they were arrested at the airport trying to flee the country. That's that's not good, Nick. Uh, the two Soviet-born businessmen were arrested Wednesday night at Washington Dulles International Airport on campaign finance-related charges. Federal authorities allege they violated the law to funnel money to numerous Republican committees. Uh, the FEC chair warned that the charges brought against the two associates of President Trump's personal lawyer highlight the flow of dark money in the U.S. political system and represent just the tip of the iceberg. Trump showed support for Rudy by sharing a lunch with him this last weekend. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, we learned on Monday that former National Security Council official uh, Fiona Hill testified that John Bolton, here we go, Bolton, uh, told her to notify the chief lawyer for the National Security Council about a rogue effort by Sondland and Giuliani and Nick Mulvaney. Uh, specifically, Bolton told Hill to tell the lawyers, quote, I am not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up. He further noted that Giuliani's hand grenade, uh, who's going to blow, <laughs> Giuliani's a hand grenade, is going to blow everybody up. Um, 
Phil, is Rudy <laughs> still on your list of people that is going to jail? Yeah, he's he is still at the top, and the gap between he and number two is widening. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, so this is this is a fascinating story, right? I, in so many ways, it, it, it it's going to tie into the Ukraine Russia stuff. I mean, it's all interconnected, right? So I, these two guys, these two Russians, are um, you know they're the the funneling they're funneling money to to Pete Sessions to a number of Republicans. They funneled money into I don't remember if it was Trump's election campaign or if it was PACs that were lined up with Trump, but uh, yeah. funneled money into that. It came out today or yesterday that Rudy Giuliani got paid $500,000 by one of these guys to consult, right? So uh, this is, again, where you get around to the, pres- the, the attorney to the president. So Rudy Giuliani is President Trump's attorney. He's not getting paid, right? He's doing this for free for President Trump. He's getting paid a half a million dollars by this Russian, you know, investor guy. Um, and the president is putting him essentially in charge of this kind of, you know, backdoor non-official foreign policy regarding Ukraine and Russia. It's I mean, it just reeks of illegality and certainly of inappropriateness. Right. Um, now, the part that's going to be interesting, I think, is because you were saying that Trump sort of showed his support. It wasn't clear and it's still not clear that how long he's going to stand by Giuliani. Right. Like at one point he was asked, is Giuliani still your attorney? And 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 his response, did you see that? His response was like, he, yes. he, well, he was. I don't know where what really he's up to now. <laughs> he has been my yeah. attorney. He has been it my attorney. It seems like you That's should right. know if somebody's your attorney. Right. So <laughs> the thing we know about Trump is that his allegiance lasts as long as it benefits Trump. And so the instant that this doesn't look good for Rudy, Trump will throw him under the bus. The interesting part is that I think Rudy's the exact same way, right? The, in, the moment That's it benefits sad. him, he's going to throw Trump under the bus. And so it feels like to me, this is the collision that we're watching happen in slow motion. At some point, they're going to turn on each other. And that's going to get really interesting slash entertaining slash terrifying when that happens. Because neither of them will be able to keep their mouth shut. I mean, they're not smart, (laughs) right? I mean, both of them will just say things (laughs) and it's going to be a disaster. (laughs) I mean, what Tom last week said, the the thing an attorney should do is shut up. Mm -hmm. And Rudy can't do that. And Trump can't do that. Mm -hmm. I just I'm kind of shocked that he's held on this long after that spree of of um, uh, new shows that he did over the past week or two. Uh, And and the statement that you were talking about, Phil, where he he has been my lawyer. I assumed that the next day or two we would see that Rudy is out. Yeah. You know, there are subpoenas and and what it just there. There seems to be so much mounting evidence that there's major illegalities you know, that illegalities here that we're that we're unaware of. Um, in terms of the the investigation that's going on, I'm a little concerned that so much information is leaking out of them. Um, but there's just so much information; it's yes. crazy. Um, it's bad. It's just bad, and I, I feel bad. Like he's he, I, he's the nine eleven guy. I just feel yeah. bad all the he's time. He's not that guy anymore. He's not that guy anymore. He's different. Unfortunately, you know, we, we talked a bit about uh, John Bolton, and and in the past we've said that Bolton should be nowhere near the levers of power. 
that he's dangerous. He's a, uh, you know, he, he thinks war solves every problem, but in this circumstance, he is the voice of reason, right? What does that tell you? Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, even though, I mean, cause here's the thing, like, even though I don't agree with Bolton's view, he's a smart guy, right? He's, he's read all the books that we've read. I mean, he's, you can have a conversation with him. He just has an extreme view on this. And if Bolton is looking around and seeing what Rudy's up to and saying like, this is, this is a disaster. I want nothing to do with this drug deal. Mm-hmm. That says something that, you know, he is now the adult in the room and we should all run for cover. But is is Bolton, say, I don't know the answer to this, but is Bolton saying that about like, I don't want anything to do with that because of the inappropriateness of it or because of the stupid ass way that it's being done? <laughs> that it's going <laughs> to, when he talks about Giuliani being a grenade that's going to explode, that doesn't necessarily mean that he thinks that what he's happening is, is, it's awful. It could be that the way they're doing it is so awful that they're all going to go down in flames. That's that's true. But you know, Bolton doesn't strike me a guy who is going to be corrupt, right? I mean, he's got. I, I don't like his ideas, but he has some integrity in those no, ideas. He's a true believer, right? Yeah. Uh, so you know, if he's seeing the fact that Rudy is running a, a parallel foreign policy, that he's doing all of this stuff, that would bother him. And and good on him for saying, you know, reaching out to the lawyers to say this is bad news. I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of Is suspect you You were talking about how Rudy, you're surprised that Rudy stuck with or that Trump is stuck with Rudy. Um, I sort of think that Trump, this is where it comes around to that Trump doesn't know law and he doesn't know what's a good legal strategy and he's never faced repercussions for things in the past. And I think when he sees Rudy on TV, like doing crazy stuff and talking about stuff, he's not thinking about the legal perspective of it. He's thinking about the PR side of it. And I think Trump likes it. He likes that Rudy goes out there Mm -hmm. and says all of this crazy stuff, even if it's disastrous for Trump's legal defense. And that's where I think in the end, because Trump won't listen to attorneys and he just wants people who who like, you know, lash out on his behalf. That's going to be his undoing in the end. Mm-hmm. Any other administration would have cut Rudy off months ago, right? This even just the the hint of this kind of behavior and he would have been out. And it's only because he and Trump have this relationship that he sticks around because I'm guessing everybody else is trying to say to him, you got to get rid of Giuliani. I mean, nobody can think there's no there's no way Giuliani is good for Trump at this point, is he? It's, it, there's more scandals. There's more. No press conference he's going to do is going to help Trump out. Yeah. I, I think if you if you if you approach, uh, I mean, so if you go back to what we talked about last week, which is impeachment as a political fight as opposed to a legal fight, then if you're trying to shift the the sort of narrative or trying to convince people that this is a sham investigation, then you know maybe there's some strategy to what Rudy is doing. Uh, but I think. It, at this point, he's doing more damage than good, even on the PR side of things. Um, and in the end, when when it's all done and Trump is out of office, the, that's when the legal chickens come home to roost, yeah. right? Especially for Rudy, mm-hmm. right? There's going to be a lot of chickens roosting in Rudy's jailhouse. Yeah, <laughs> Rudy could be the fall guy, right? I mean, that, that maybe that's why Trump keeps him around is that when this all hits the fan, Rudy might be the guy that takes the real political heat. I'm sorry, real legal heat. Mm-hmm. And Trump is able to wiggle out. I mean, his previous lawyer is in jail, right? Uh, and Trump is not. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh, man. Poor Rudy. Yeah. All right, let's move on. <laughs> so on Wednesday, President Trump will have served his 1,000th day in office. Wow, that's a lot of days. Um, and in that time, according to the Washington Post fact checker database that analyzes, categorizes, and tracks every suspect statement that he has uttered, Trump will have made 13,435 false or misleading claims. 
13,435. Trump has upped the pace of late and has been averaging almost 22 false claims a day over the last two months. The Post notes that the big reason for this uptick in Trump's false or misleading statements has been the impeachment inquiry. Trump repeatedly uh, repeated suggestions that the whistleblower complaint was inaccurate, has earned him the special category of bottomless Pinocchio because he's repeated this claim 29 different times. Phil, while all presidents lie and spin, Trump has taken the art to a new level. It's nothing our political system has ever seen before. That's cool, right? I mean, that's that's good. It's, you <laughs> sure, know, he's right. a norm entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're having so much fun. <laughs> that's right. No, I mean, I think that, that what's interesting about Trump's approach is, uh, well, I, I, again, I you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know what's going on in his head. But I, I mean, I think to some extent, it, I don't know how much of this is a lie to him, and how much of this is just. You know, people who attack me, I'm attacking back. It's sort of constant Mm -hmm. denial. But as a strategy, I I don't know if it's strategic or not. But as a strategy, the thing that it has done is essentially unmoor us from any sense of truth, right? Like we're not, we're not attacking. The the example, I mean, the turkey example, we can go back to where uh, Trump releases the the press release that says, uh, in fact, I have it. Right here. Let me uh, let me look at it. Um, when he makes the statement, I mean, he says in the press release, um, pre- I spoke with President uh, Erdogan of Turkey by telephone. Turkey will soon be moving forward with its long planned operation into northern Syria. So it, it's in writing, right? I can find the press release. And in a matter of four days, they've now started talking about how we didn't know that Turkey was going to invade. That was not part of the agreement. And the, the total just disconnect from reality and the shamelessness with which they're willing to say it throws people off. And in fact, actually, you know, is sort of effective. Like people now, like the, I think the media people in general don't really know what to do with someone who's just willing to say whatever. Um, and, you know, it's an example of us. You know, again, we're, we're used to the prison we live in at this point. It's, it's just the new reality. Um, and the, the question will be the long term effects, right? Like when when Trump is gone and someone else comes into office, can that be undone um, or will is this the new normal? Yeah. Thirteen thousand four hundred and thirty-five, Dick. It's coming from the Washington Post, so I, I'm assuming that's about four times as many as it's actually. Well, they did say that was, <laughs> they they held Obama. I mean, they they also went after Obama. I mean, this is I think it started in 2008, where they are now an official thing. Yes, and they've got a metric. I mean, I will say, like, what they do is pretty thorough. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is a tough one. Yeah, like, I, I I I I mean, in terms of of mainstream media outlets, I I tend not to believe a lot of what they say, frankly. Yeah, but. When we're talking about lying and, and, and Trump in this particular situation, I think it's there's a there's a weird distinction between bold face, outright lying and believing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I think that what he says isn't necessarily to your point, Phil, a lot of a lot of this isn't strategic. It's not this well-crafted thing to put a spin on something that is completely out of left field. He just says something. And I think part of him believes it. He George Costanza is the shit out of it. <laughs> it's not a lie. If you believe it, um, does that make it right? No. Um, it, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's just embarrassing to even have to talk about something like this in, in such breadth and scope. Um, yeah. And like you said, the, 
the it would be one thing if it was something that is said and there's months or years that go by and it proves not to be true and everybody doesn't remember the original thing. But when it's, you know, a few days or even hours after an original statement comes out and you have the administration immediately backtracking, it's just a terrible look and it's terrible political optics. But I think it's effective, though, because he he repeats it over and over and over again. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the one thing when you look at the Washington Post website. He'll say something 29, 30 times, and it kind of, he kind of just beats you down with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there's a book, uh, this guy. Uh, Where uh, is Hunter Biden, by the way? He's, oh, he's, <laughs> oh, he's resigned. He's not, you know, he's, he's, he's got other things going on. There was this, this guy, Harry Frankfurt, who wrote this book called On Bullshit. It's fantastic because it talks about the difference between lies and bullshit. And a lie, so if you're lying, you know that there is a truth right. and you're just not saying that. Bullshit is you don't care about the truth. You just it's it's all about a narrative, you know, pushing things in your direction. And Trump does both of those things mm-hmm. fantastically well. I mean, thirteen thousand lies is 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 a level we've never seen before in the office of the presidency. We've never seen a president lie like this. Nixon was up there pretty. Nixon high. lied, but he was also <laughs> to Phil's point, he was shamed. I mean, he wouldn't openly. He didn't want to be called out. And Trump doesn't care about that. He's unmoored from any sense of shame or truth. And I don't know where we go moving forward with this. I, I think we're likely to fall back to a more traditional politician. God, I hope not. But but there's there will be some legacy, and it's it's a big deal to me. This this is the one thing that we you know it's right in front of our face, and we don't really grapple with it as much as we should. Mm-hmm. Well, it's I mean it, it's also a part of a bigger picture or a bigger thing that we've talked about a lot on here, which is partisanship, right? I mean this yeah. idea of of if you view everything through a partisan lens, then you're going to trust. Trump and distrust people who are saying critical things of Trump. And if you're viewing it from a democratic lens, you're going to be skeptical of everything Trump says. And and that takes priority to the actual fact of, you know, the whether the truth, like rather than actually digging into the truth, we sort of pursue politics as this faith based enterprise. Right. Um, yeah. And that's that's uh, that's a part of it. I don't know how we come back from that, uh, but uh yeah, it seems like we we kind of have to, right? Oh, yeah. Or the system yeah. is going to break down. There has to be an accepted truth, right? There has to be, you know, facts have to matter, and then you can have interpretation of those facts. But if there's not a, if if, if there's two distinct narratives that are not grounded in reality, there's no room for compromise. It's just, you know, it, it's identity politics, it's partisanship. That's a really, really bad place to go. Then then it makes sense. Lock everybody up because if they're from the other side, they're dangerous. I, I mean, in terms of, of narrative and, and lying in politics and, you know, standard politicians, what we've been used to over decades and decades, yeah. um, I, I think you can't ignore the fact that Part of the reason that he's there is because people felt like they were being lied to mm-hmm. all the time, regardless mm-hmm. sure. of the efficacy of all of that. Right. You can't ignore the fact that the narrative that a lot of people went with and helped to get him elected was the fact that they felt that the system was rigged against them or rigged in some way that regardless of what he's saying right now, mm-hmm. you may, you know, he he might be over exaggerating or, you know, talking out of his ass but he is not a politician. He's not, you know, a, a, a fork tongue 
demon that is just going to to bullshit you the entire way. He's at least going to No, he is that. Give you- He's just not a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Two different types of demons. I'm sorry. Well, and he says um, it out loud, too, which is, is an important thing. Like, you know, Nixon, he didn't say it out loud. Trump will just say, yes, I did the illegal thing out loud. You know, I right. did that. I did that. Hey, he, he fulfilled yeah. a campaign promise. He's getting us out of a conflict <laughs> right. in the Middle right. East. I mean, the whole thing with Ukraine where he said, yeah, I asked him to investigate Biden. And China should investigate Biden. Mm-hmm. We don't know what to do with that because we're, <laughs> we're used to people, if they're engaging in conduct that we see as, is you know, illegitimate, you, you keep it a secret. And he's well, like, no, no, it, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, we've talked about before how Trump is is his policies aren't necessarily all that different from previous presidents. They he just talks about them different, really, right? right. And this is this yeah. seems like that, right? We're used to presidents spinning, right? <laughs> Who try to twist the narrative, um, which is you know lying, right? It's just that we we the idea of like just being bold about it. Yeah, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to say whatever the hell I want. Um, is like that kind of taking it up to the next level that that in some ways maybe exposes the the problem, right? That's been at the heart of politics. Politics for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, and we've, I've, I know I've talked about it several times. That if this this is a situation, and he's being that bold about it, and you know that these are improprieties or there's something illegal going on, that it's Congress's job to do something mm-hmm. about it, and we've not seen that happen. This is your chance to take those norms and institutionalize them and put regulations mm-hmm. and laws around things, and that's still not happening. Yeah. So you can talk about it all you want. Then he's a liar, and you know he's 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 ruining the 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 office of the president and and our our greater federal institutions. But you still need to do something about it. Then, so I, I mm, yep, stupid big challenge. <laughs> All right, we're gonna wrap up with some online trolls, Nick. So this weekend, <laughs> a graphic violent parody video was shown at a meeting of the President Trump's of, of President Trump's supporters at his Miami resort. It depicts a likeness of the president shooting, stabbing and assaulting his political opponents and members of the news media in a church. The meme video, a spoof derived from a bloody action film, drew outrage from both Democrats and Republicans and the president himself for its depiction of Trump shooting journalists and attacking political figures who have been critical of him. The White House was quick to condemn the video, although not Trump himself, but the White House did. Some warned that the clip and others like it could incite real world violence. And that's yet another example of how once fringe voices of online trolls and meme makers have reshaped mainstream politics and the media. I must say, Nick, this, this video bothered me. And I told you this yesterday. I, I'm, I'm troubled by this one. <laughs> I know you are. And I like Watching memes, those you know. Yes. Uh, but this video was just a little cl- too close to reality. Phil, for you, what does this video say about the state of our politics? Well, I mean, I, so we've we've talked a lot on this uh, on this podcast about uh, the role of social media and the ability to you know to to I don't know sort of separate ourselves into these separate spheres and how that maybe enhances extremist views and, and whatnot. I mean, this kind of fits in with that. I, I, of, of course, right? This is this is. Uh, I mean, this is this is not good, right? I mean, this is uh, the, I, again the idea of this happening in any other political context would be um, uh, problematic, sort of unthinkable, right? Like uh, the idea of uh, of a video in which Barack Obama, you know, goes about systemically killing all his Democratic rivals, or George W. Bush doing the same, right? It's yeah. just you can't even imagine that that sort of happens. Um, the so, I mean, it says something about how far we've come down the the line towards demonizing the opposition. Um, it, it it is a response to you know Trump's attacks on the media, right? So this is where it feeds into that. The part that I th- I found the part that I think is that kind of 
I don't know, that I keep coming around to. Uh, the part that's kind of the most shocking to me is that I, when I see the video, I can totally, in a different context, imagine Donald Trump retweeting that, right? Like he has retweeted mm-hmm. stuff like this in the past. And so I feel like if it had come up in a different context, if it hadn't popped up as a, you know, oh my God, can you believe Donald Trump did, uh, Donald Trump supporters did this? It's the sort of thing that he would embrace, right? And so um, it's, and again, he hasn't openly, the White House has condemned it, but he hasn't necessarily. I mean, I I don't want to go on and on about norms because I think norms matter. But again, it's not it's I don't want to be the guy who's like, oh, we used to have propriety in politics. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that, you know, it it does. Rhetoric does matter in some way. And, And it would be nice to see a leader sort of more openly condemning this when it occurs. But again, it doesn't, it still in some ways is, is revealing the the level of kind of divide and animosity and, and hatred. I saw a poll today that like the percentage of Americans who are satisfied, who, who I wish I could remember the wording. It was something about like how happy you are, how it was about democracy. It was about like whether or not democracy is good or not. The the it was like thirty nine percent of Americans, right? I, that's that's kind of terrifying. And I, I think these sorts of things get at that frustration with the system, but it's also what kind of leads to the breakdown of the system. I I, I don't I don't know what to make of it. I I like you am disturbed, but also unsurprised. Like this seems kind of representative of where we are as a country, Nick. You're not as disturbed. No, but I'm you, not. you pointed out last night that these videos are out there. Yeah, all. This and that's is the thing. Yeah. You, you, you're talking about him. So and I, I remember one very distinctly. These videos have been around for years at this point, since before he was when he was still on the campaign trail. Not that he's not on the campaign trail now and has been for three <laughs> years, but nobody batted an eye about it. Uh, and they were just it was the same thing. It was CNN and the DNC and Hillary and the same people in these things. And I think the one I the the famous one or the early one was them and like Braveheart or something like oh, that, yeah, which yeah. was frankly hilarious. And I'm, I'm not going to concede that point. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's 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 I, I understand why people would be uncomfortable with it. But at the same time. I, I, my viewpoint is that this is the administration denounced it. Maybe the president did it, but it's not coming from the administration. I understand that a, an element that is very close to in or in support of the administration uh, created it, but it's an online troll too. Like what the fuck are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to denounce and, and separate yourself from every one of these things that comes forward? I, like, I, I don't understand what, what you, what you're really supposed to do from a policy standpoint. Your point is is valid um, because you're right. There are going to be crazy people all over the place who come up with these things. That, that but it, it, and this is where it gets in a gray area because it wasn't Donald Trump who showed it at a rally, but it was an event that was a pro-Trump event that had a number of like prominent kind of people from Trump circles that were a part of it and that spoke at it. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be one of those things where if at a Trump rally, they played this, it would be really easy to, to, again, to, to condemn the, the sort of endorsement for me, the endorsement, the, the Trump endorsement of this video, right? Like it's, it's anyway, uh, this isn't that weird in between. It's not just some random person on the internet who came up with it. My understanding, in fact, is that it was on YouTube for a long time and had like 
40 views and that this basically <laughs> right. has led it to explode. So, but it was a pro Trump event where they went out and found it and decided that, Hey, this is what we're going to show. This is representative of what we as Trump supporters, you know, are, mm-hmm. are on board with. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I'm not, so I'm, I don't know, but it's like the truth is somewhere. I, I don't know. I feel like it's somewhere in the middle. I totally get your points, Nick, but I, I at the same time. Yeah. That's fine. You guys just don't have senses of humor and no, you don't no. have a good meme game. That's fine. Yeah. Which is like, I swear this is, this is a legitimate political theory that's, that's coming around now in terms of in the, the, um, not waning days, but you know, the, during the Trump administration, that the reason that part of his ascent to power, uh, and you know, the, the, the new right and, uh, elements that are kind of in support of this is they're way better at creating memes mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. that are easily shareable and things that kind of speak to that that base instinct of people and you guys just don't have that frankly no that's true <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm i'm more i'm sort of okay with that i guess what troubles me most is the proximity to the president i think you're right you're both right that the president didn't do this i think it's possible trump might have retweeted this had it been raised differently but it's that there are major supporters of him who kind of embrace this. And there's always been groups like that, but it feels like those groups are closer to the center of power All right. than they may have been previously. Sure. Like fringe groups were on the fringe and now it feels like fringe groups are closer to the circles of power. So here's the thing. There's, you say embrace. So what does that imply? Does that mean that they actually want to go out and kill these members, these institutions and specific people, or do they just, you know, watch it and think it's funny. There are both, right? I think the majority of them just watch and think I'm owning a libs, right? This is fantastic, right? And most probably do that. But there certainly are others who look at this who are inspired by this. And so, you know, is anybody going to go and attack journalists? I hope not. But there have been legitimate attacks on on journalists recently. There were plenty of attacks on the people that were at that Trump rally, too. Yeah. The crazy crazy van driver guy. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I, I don't know. I just, I think, you know, tamping down the rhetoric would be good. And, and I'm just troubled by that. This, this sort of stuff is closer to the centers of power. I mean, could you imagine George HW Bush, you know, no, this, this, you know, we talked about that too. And you know, for a fact, if there was a, a, a robust social media uh, uh, ability or apparatus like we have now in any administration, we would see shit like this no matter what. I think Trump is a distinct animal that way, right? I mean, it's it's different with him. It, it wouldn't be as funny if it was George H.W. Bush. I think I... Or Bill Clinton. I think trolls would find a way to make it... Oh, you know there would be trolls with, with Bill Clinton. I it, Like, I, I... It's... I, It'd be I, different. I, yeah. It would be different. Yes, yeah. I agree. This is kind of an anomaly. But if this was if we were 20 years into having social media back in any one of those administrations or any presidential administration, we would see very similar things. And going forward, we will see just as, you know, quote unquote, detrimental or harmful um content as we do right now the the you know the cats out of the bag no i know that 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 disturbs me maybe more than anything (laughs) this is why we need to filter our internet like china right (laughs) there it is (laughs) it all comes full circle uh we couldn't find the content you were Mm. looking for oh that was fun we had a lot of stuff i'm really glad we didn't have to completely focus on impeachment yeah always makes me happy um regardless if you guys want to um Again, check out what we're up to, uh, have questions, beer suggestions, uh, anything like that. Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. 
Uh, Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then if you weren't here at the beginning of the podcast, we are doing a live show uh, on November 20th uh, at 6.30 p.m. Uh, on North Central's campus. Um, myself, Bill, uh, Phil, as well as uh, Tom Cavanaugh and Suzanne Chad will be joining us. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, like I said, go to uh, Eventbrite, uh, which would be R-I-T-E uh, dot com. Search for uh, Barstool Politics on there. Tickets are free. Um, we just want to get a feel for, you know, how many, how many of you guys are actually, actually want to attend. Yeah. It would be very nice. Um, so definitely check that out. Like I said, November 20th, 6 30 PM, plenty of time. So do that. Um, anything else guys? This was good. Phil. I'm good. Go Strohs. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> See you next week. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Shut up and sit down.